We want to continue with our study in this series called Confessional Apologetics. We actually broke it down into three sects and a mini section dealing with the history of the church and the controversy which led up to the calling of the assembly itself. And that was known as the Reformation in England at that time. And then we are dealing with this second section, which is on the importance and unity of creeds, the necessity by which we maintain our creedal faith, establishing that which is true, set forth as required to be believed within the church of Jesus Christ. And the Westminster divines, when they had the duty to come and to look at the 39 Articles of England in order to perfect them better as to professing the real faith taught in the scripture, they said it was not a possibility to do so, but rather they would need of necessity to rewrite and establish a new confession which later became known as, of course, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was finished actually in 1465, uh, I'm sorry, 1645, and and later uh, adopted in Scotland in 1647. And that's the date that we go by. Excuse me, 45, I think they were carried over for a short time in 46. But England did not adopt that confession. It was adopted in Scotland. It was the fulfillment of the Solemn League of Covenant. This is why they had gathered to bring the fullness of the true religion as they identified it in the reformation that had taken place on the continent, so too they wanted to see the three kingdoms, Ireland, England, and Scotland, united in one faith. That faith being professed and written in order that they might have unity and walk as one church, like-minded. And so, hopefully today, I will finish this section, and then next week we will begin in the Westminster Confession to cover it. Now, we're not going to spend, you could spend 10 years in it, and you'd never even exhaust because it's taken from the word of God and there's so much you could derive from it. But because I'm really developing this idea on the basis that we have a right understanding of how to answer for the hope that is within us to defend our faith when we are asked, when we are challenged. I'm showing exactly what our theological position in faith is in order that we might better understand how to equip ourselves to do that work of defending our faith according to the dictates of God's holy word. So it is this system that we're going through that we're teaching in this series is entitled Confessional Apologetics. The subtitle is The Concept of Confessional Theology as the Philosophical Method of Revelational Presuppositional Apologetics. Our sermon text is 2 Timothy 1, 13-14. The Apostle Paul is writing, Hold fast the pattern of sound words. This is the system of theology taught by the confession. Hold fast 
the sound words, which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Paul said, you've heard the pattern of the sound words I have taught. You maintain that doctrine, that teaching, which is what the word doctrine means. That teaching that I have conveyed to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, all that doctrine comes back to one pinnacle of importance that it must be honoring and glorifying to Jesus Christ. Paul goes on. That good thing which was committed to you. Now it's been committed to you. That good thing. That redemption and that doctrine which guides you, directs you every step of the way. It's a lamp unto your feet, a light to the path so that you know how to walk. God did not leave us in darkness and tell us to grope about and try to figure out how we would like to serve him, but he has given us the scripture and we have light and we do not grope in darkness. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. The key of that, as the confession teaches us, is that the Holy Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we have been given the word of the living God. And I want to emphasize this. And it's something that I think we take for granted way too much. The scripture, the Bible that we have is literally God's words and ink to us. It is God speaking to us. It is to be revered, honored, defended. Because when a man misleads, when a man teaches that which is contrary to the word, it is an affront to our God. So we have to be very careful. We have to be very particular and meticulous in the faith that we believe. And in this sense, a good apologist must first be a good orthodox theologian. Premised on two basic things. One, he is capable of exegeting the scripture properly. Right? We train our people in the biblical languages, and we train them in hermeneutics on how to understand the Bible properly with the basic summation of the Reformation's teaching on that. Scripture interprets the Scripture. The Scripture is its own best interpreter. It's written by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will never take us contrary to it. But he'll lead us, direct us, and teach us that word. You never have a conflict. You never hear that, well, that was for that time, but it's not for us. When there is a didactic involved, a command to do certain things. Unless there is an example where something has been fulfilled and therefore it no longer has application to us. For example, in the Old Testament, the wife was to the husband 
the husband as the head of the wife really had the legal standing in Israel. Not so much the wife. But in the New Testament, the husband, even though he's the head of the home, the wife too is treated as standing equally responsible before God. Very, very important. There is now, therefore, no difference between male and female, Jew and Greek. Doesn't say anything about parents and children. So we know the basic structure of the family has not altered. It has not been rescinded there. Free or bond, slave, if you will, or free. There is no difference. All must stand equally before God. All must be dealt with equally before the law of God. Why? Because we are created, each one, in the very image of God. And so it is, we pick up where we left off. We are looking in particular at now coming to the Reformed profession of regula fide. This becomes even more important for us to understand. The Reformation was a return to what has been known as apostolic simplicity. The plain preaching and teaching and worshiping of God according to Scripture. The phrase apostolic simplicity was one of the adopted models that were expressing the desire to return to the tradition of the apostles in essence. That is, to maintain biblical doctrine or orthodoxy, that is, right teaching and right praxis, or if you will, the right practice for the church. That's what the design of the Westminster Confession was for. How close to the word of God can we bring our doctrine and our church to reflect the church that is taught about in the scripture? And so they had a great responsibility to do this kind of work. And it took them some time to do it. It wasn't done overnight. And they debated and they argued the scripture back and forth, seeking to exhaust as much as humanly possible the meaning of certain texts in order to understand the pattern of sound words in establishing the doctrines of the Christian faith. And they lay it out almost in a very systematic format. It is, without question, a good system of theology, or, as we would say today, a systematic theology. Thus, apostolic simplicity really takes us back to a principle that the scripture is the final authority in regulating our faith, our belief, the way we practice our belief. The scripture regulates us, not the Pope, not a king, but where are you going to put that authority? Well, who's the head of the church? Scripture's clear. It's Jesus Christ. How does he lead his church if he's not here? He has, with the Father, sent the Spirit to write the doctrine and the practices that belong to the saints. 
that which is contained in the written word of God. You see how important it is? It is no small thing. You know, when you read the Bible, you need to stop and think, I'm reading the mind revealed to me of he who is creator of all things. This isn't a book written by man. Though men were used, moved by the Holy Spirit, but they wrote God's revelation of himself, of his will, of Christ, the way of redemption, and of things in the church and the final consummation in the end of the world. It is not to be taken for granted. No matter what you do in life, you need to check to ensure that you are following the precepts of the word God has given you in order that you live your life according to the dictates he has mandated for us. Well, the term regular fide is the Latin phrase that means rule of faith. The rule of faith is the doctrines that are taught in the scripture. They literally rule our faith. They govern us. They are the authority for us, the final authority. That's the way the divine seen it. And they said, this is the way Christ heads his church. The highest authority in the church is not a man. It's not a king. It's not the pope. It's not somebody in the church who is holding office, but it is rather the word of God to which all people in the church must submit their lives unto. So the Bible is not meaningless or it's not just a story. But it dictates what you must believe and how you must practice that belief in every area of life. The scripture is the rule by which we judge the Westminster divines teach us. All teachings, traditions, creeds, confessions, and private teachings written or spoken by men to determine their faithfulness to the scripture. The authority of the word. The authority is the word of the living God. And whatever it commands and demands, we are expected to act accordingly. Principle of regular fide is set forth in the Westminster Confession of Faith of 1647, as we see it adopted in Scotland, in chapter 1 and section 10, affirming the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest. That is, we are to, what? Submit unto the final authority of the word of God, in whom we are to rest, can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture. He's the author. And he speaks to us both in what has been written and in conveying that by his spirit, bearing witness with our spirit, if we have truly been born again, that we can confirm we are walking in that faith 
with faithfulness each and every day of our life. It is not sinful for men to confess their faith. That is, to confess or to write their beliefs about what the Bible teaches. We don't care whether it's a book on doctrine or an opinion of a man about certain things that he believes the scripture says, or whether it's a creed, a confession, or a counsel, does not matter. We're not, and we do not think that is sinful. What is sinful is that they alter the teaching of the word of God. Their duty is to give us right orthodoxy, right practice, so that we believe and practice the faith appropriately. The fact that the Bible is replete with such confessions. Jesus Christ taught this very principle in Matthew 10, 32, where he says, therefore, whoever confesses me before man, confessing him is making a statement about him. Him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Confessing Christ is what? Speaking the truth about the very person that God has sent to redeem mankind. And that confession is what? Living the gospel, teaching the gospel, practicing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We find this same principle taught in the Pauline literature, wherein the apostle states, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, have to believe in a resurrection. You not only have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to believe in his incarnation, which includes what? The virgin birth, the sinless life, the work upon the cross, being buried into the grave. And then he says, not enough. You must believe what? In the resurrection. Why? Life is based on being resurrected from the dead. It is a physical attribute of that spiritual awakening that we're called to in Christ. When we as dead creatures turn in our faith and profess Christ. And then we are awakened. We represent that. For example, here today, and as Pastor Enro said, we actually celebrate the resurrection each week. Why? Because we gather together. We are representing us coming together as a church in a body that is united in Christ it speaks of our unity that we have in Christ, that we're alive, that we go before God spiritually in the worship of our service and we honor him in the way that we act, the way we think, the things we do when we are here. Thus, the resurrection given every week. We have it in the Lord's Supper. We have it in the gathering of the saints, which is what's going to happen when what? Christ returns. He's going to gather his saints to himself from the dead. Resurrect their body. Resurrection is one of the central themes of the Apostle Paul. 
Now, I'm not going to spend much more time on this aspect of resurrection, because if I do, I'm going to get into Jason's next sermon, and he's not going to be happy, and which is not a good thing to have your friend not happy with you. But he will share very concisely with you how important this doctrine is. And here the scripture says, you must believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Then you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession, speaking, talking, living your life and every aspect of it. whether you're lying down or whether you're rising up, whether you're walking by the way with your children, whether you're taking time to train your children properly and faith, every aspect of life is always centered around the word of God. Thus with the mouth is made unto salvation. That's why, and it's very hard to live this life, we are called to walk a very hard life as a Christian. His burden is not heavy, but to be consistent and honest and straightforward, you have to work. And that's what we're ordained unto. You have to work unto life. There are works. We don't work to get acceptance with God. That comes by faith alone. But Ephesians 2.10 tells you we have been ordained to walk in the good works. They have got to be there because you can't demonstrate faith apart from good works, from the fruit of the Spirit. It just simply can't be done. So here we have a very clear teaching from Christ himself. It does not matter if that confession is oral or if it's written because we are commanded to comply with this directive by some means of a public testimony or statement of our faith. Such a confession is also expressed by even preaching. Paul writes in Galatians 1.23, But they were hearing only. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. Preaching is confessing the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul himself set forth the principle that it was a more developed confession and not just no creed but Christ or no creed but the Bible, which literally says nothing and really means nothing. You have to have specificity in order to know what it is that you believe about Christ or about the nature of the word that God has given to us. In Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 6, we read the Apostle Paul who states, and I quote, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Notice, walk worthy. Because if you don't walk worthy you got a problem with God and then the judgment you will find out how demanding he is in the faith that we live, that we walk in it. We've been called to do this. He says, with all lowness and gentleness, with long-suffering, 
bearing with one another in love. We are long-suffering. We're bearing one another in love. Listen to the nature of the believer. Did you hear this? Gentleness, lowliness, meaning in humility. Gentleness with the long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. That's the kind of love that says, look, you know, you did wrong, but I'm not going to do evil as a response to your evil. But rather, in keeping the law of God, I will bear with you and seek restoration of the faith. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We are to live in peace if we have Christ within us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit being regenerated, we are living in the unity of the Spirit. We have one faith, one Lord, one baptism. We live as one body in Christ, led by Christ and through the power of his Spirit. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling. There are not many callings here. There is one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Here's a confession. Here is a doctrine that's being set out of what it is we are to believe. Here we find a confession of the Christian faith that is more complex rather than just, oh yeah, I'm a believer. I don't know about you, but I think that little statement would make a great song. I'm a believer. And probably it's so simple I could get a bunch of monkeys to do it. But there is a complexity to our faith. Yeah, there's an intellectual challenge that we have in articulating the faith correctly. And if you want to see, and I don't recommend you dwell long in it, if you want to see it done wrong, go to the internet. You'll pick it up real quickly. Even those who are trying to contend for certain theological positions lack in their understanding. They do not spend the time. I doubt if they're being taught the depth of their faith. And they probably do not have a confession by which they govern their life. Thus, councils, creeds, or confessions are to be an expression of the church's unity of our faith. That is, unity in beliefs according to the right interpretation of the Word of God. The Apostle Paul makes such a claim in Philippians 2, 1 through 3, wherein he states, quote, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affections and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. We are to strive to be like-minded. How would we know if we're achieving the goal of like-mindedness? You have to have a confession. You have to have a pattern of sound words. You have to have a system of doctrine that represents the very teaching of the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. That's why you have a confession. That's why you make counsel. The churches are following these things, confessing the faith rightly according to the Word of God. Being like-minded. That's what we're being called to. We're being called to maintain a unity of our faith in an expression 
of whether it's oral or written confession of what it is we believe. Having the same love, being of one accord. You can't do that apart from having a confession of faith that we unite around together, that we are like-minded together, that we are seeking to bring to pass those doctrines in our practices in our social gathering of life in order to glorify God. Of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. People sometimes will want through selfish ambition to get ahead. Or to take advantage of. Yeah, he says, do not let that happen. Not selfish ambition, nor through conceit, but in lowliness of mind, in humility, if you will, that each esteem others better than himself. He didn't say give way to those who are ignorant of doctrine. Of course not. You couldn't have the unity. But don't treat them with content, with a selfish ambition, and take advantage of them. Rather, esteem them, even if they're ignorant, better than himself or yourself, if you will. Walk in the state of humility all of your life. We are here to unite and help one another, not here to destroy and to bite and to devour one another. That's not our goal. Our goal is to bring everybody up together, to teach and uplift by the Spirit of God, the truth of God that each would aspire to live that truth in their life. I maintain that it is rejection of such written statements of belief and the refusal to public commit to writing what is often taught in the sermons themselves and the Bible studies that are used to lead people because there is usually a deception that is going on with the church. They have decided they cannot and will not be caught in that heretical teaching and one that they know the history of the church, the councils have approved over and over and over again. So it is, they won't, Commit to writing what it is we say we believe. There's no transparency. That's a word that we hear a lot about politically today, which really doesn't happen in Washington, D.C., and we don't see it with the new administration. It's being hidden. Well, mostly forgotten, but it's hidden. And so we have this responsibility. What do you believe? This is what we believe. This is our faith. We have it not only in doctrinal statements that is a system of theology, but we have for those who are ignorant and or uneducated or for the smaller children, a shorter catechism that was written for you and then a larger one for those who want and have been further educated and want to do a more in-depth study of our confession. <clears throat> But often, even the desire of a pastor is not to be examined or scrutinized as to his belief or practices from the pulpit or from the ecclesiastical principles that are supposedly adopted within the church. Paul warns Christians in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, that unless we are united in Christ, 
which requires a confession of what we believe about Christ, who he was, what he has done, what he will yet do for his church. We will be led about by every wind, he says, of doctrine. That is, a doctrine not of God and not of his word, but a doctrine written by man that is contrary to the word of the living God. And Paul here writes in Ephesians, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists. Those are three extraordinary offices. By the time that the scripture is written, there are no more of these offices here. The only two, and we identify offices by the requirement that each has its qualification. You don't apply the diagonal qualification to the elders and then take the elders and apply it across line. They are given directly. You can't create an office in the church. How do you become apostle? Now it's impossible. The way that they did it back then, much different. But it can't be repeated. So, you know, every time you get something on Facebook and it says the apostle something, he gets the click, no. I don't want to be friends with you. Who do you think you're pretending to be? You can't be that. You either are an elder, and he could go by the word minister or preacher. We don't mind that. Even bishop, that's a biblical term. It just means he's a shepherd. He protects and shepherds the church. Or a deacon. He can be either one. Because both have requirements to admission to the office. But there are no longer the first three offices of the church. They were there for the establishment as the word of God was being completed in its writing now that we have it completed, we have been developing exactly as he has given us a responsibility. And we've done that by elders and deacons. And so Paul says, and some pastors and teachers, which is what pastors do, they shepherd, that's what the pastor means, and they are teachers, they preach and teach doctrine to the church for the equipping of the saints. Oh, that, by the way, is why we do this. Not for you to come and go, oh boy, was that a great oratory expression today. We are to be equipping you. If you're not getting equipped on learning doctrine and how to live in your life in Christ, in the unity of the Spirit, we got a problem and you got a problem in coming and not hearing that and understanding. Because these were given for the purpose of equipping the saints for what? The work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro about, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love. What? Speaking the word of God according to love. What is love? The fulfillment of the law, Paul says. Thus, not transgressing against those who come to hear the word preach. You don't violate the word of God. You don't deceive. You don't mislead them. And they grow what? Up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working, by which every part does its share, causes growth of the holy, of the body, excuse me, 
for the edifying of itself in what? Love. The honoring of one another in the faith. To have such unity of faith requires much greater specificity than the nominal statement that some say, such as no creed but Christ or no creed but the Bible. They literally are void for vagueness, as they say in legal terms, because they don't have any meaning. No specificity. The failure in establishing the biblical traditions or confessions of Christ and the apostles and those beliefs and practices that the scripture require for the church of Jesus Christ leads to utter failure of the church because she has lost her theological moorings. By failing to commit to a public confession of Christ for the better establishment of the church. This was the intent of the writing of the Holy Scripture. The Westminster divines make this point in chapter 1, section 1 of their confession, which hopefully next week we will begin looking at. I don't know how fast we'll get through chapter 1, section 1, because I only have 68 pages of notes. But we're going to attempt to get through it in a few lessons. Chapter 1, of course, is going, it lays the foundation. We're going to spend a little time there. But listen to what they state concerning our faith and our practice. And they wrote, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest goodness, wisdom, and the power of God as to leave them inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church, and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan, and of the world, to commit the same holy unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. Those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. The church, therefore, is to give itself over to the scripture as the regulation of their faith. It is their guide. It is their teaching of doctrine. It is the right application, the practices of applying that faith in their activities of life daily in the way they think. We have a great responsibility before God. We need confessions. We need to do our confessions. We need to be reading our confessions. We need to read our shorter catechism. We need to read and study the larger catechism. We need to look up all those scriptures that are used because that's where they took their exegesis from in order to develop these patterns of sound words. And we need to come together in the unity of that faith because this is what we believe God gave in the expertise of calling those men to write this confession who worked diligently through it, day and night. They prayed over it. They worshiped God. They sang hymns and psalms, and they walked in unity. They were willing to debate for the truth. They didn't get bad with each other. They're not like the modern-day church. If you've got to debate something, you've got to be mad about it. There's nothing to get mad about. It's a debate. Oh, you may get a little impassioned, 
But being impassioned isn't somebody that turns around and says, well, I hate that guy. I love my brother. I've gone to Presbyterian. I've gone to General Assembly. I wanted something. I argued passionately for it. got turned down many times. Does it make me angry? No. If my brethren say to me, we do not see this as being applicable, then they are not ready. If we adopted it, they would not use it right. It could be abused. And you have to accept this is the will of the body who has come to the scripture and they have not come to that conclusion. You have to yield for the unity and the love of the brethren. And so it is. We work together. We encourage one another. Know your faith. Know what you believe. It's a shame. Do you realize in the old days, back, I'm talking back in Scotland, coming through, even up through the time of the war between the states, children, 10 years old, probably knew more theology than most ministers do today in the churches that we see, especially the TV popular churches, where they're just not trained at all and more of a marketeer than anything else. But can you imagine children being that well-educated in the faith? And people coming out of colleges don't even compare to them. Oh, we need that our children be raised in our faith, that we spend time studying that word and its meaning, and that we know what it is we believe. The unity that we have in Christ, having one mind and one faith, that we walk in lockstep together professing the love of our Lord Jesus Christ to his church and to each other in everything we do. Shall we pray?